Good evening and welcome to the Noah Hyde Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, November 7th. I'm Doug Taylor. Welcome tonight. Great to have you as part of this. And we're going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 30. We're getting close to the end of the chapter. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 30. And the verse reads, The light of your eyes makes your heart happy, and good news fattens the bones. The light of your eyes makes your heart happy, and good news fattens the bones. Now in this verse, Rabbi Moskowitz interpreted heart as meaning the emotions, and fattens the bones as meaning it makes you healthy. So we, we could read it as the light of your eyes makes your emotions happy and good news makes you healthy. So as we generally do, let's pause and ask ourselves, what are the questions that come to mind when we look at that verse? What isn't clear? What doesn't make sense? What would we need to define in order to understand the verse clearly? What kinds of questions are there here? Okay, so, yeah, Linda, good. How can eyes be enlightened? What, what, is, what does that mean? Um, what is the light of your eyes? And how does that make you happy? And when it says good news, well, what's good news? And how does that end up actually making you healthy? So, the sages seem to refer to the light of your eyes as something that is pleasing to the eyes, like a flowing river or a garden, um, something beautiful that you see where that, that's pleasing to your, to your eyes. So viewing something like that can make you glad. I mean, it's nice to look at a, an ocean or a beautiful sunset or a gorgeous mountain or something like that. It's very pleasing. Now, the second half talks about good news. And good news is usually heard. It's an audio thing. So we're talking here about news that is positive to me. This is in the second half. And it comes by way of hearing. And according to our verse, that makes us healthy. And the question is, how does that work? So I will suggest that thoughts affect us. It's my understanding that this has been shown in research, in experiments, and in a number of different ways. For example, uh, I read of uh, an experiment done where uh, people were um, tested against a hand strength meter, and they were told beforehand, you know, I want you to think thoughts that you're really, really weak, like you're just a weakling. And then they were asked to test their strength on this strength meter. And then they were told, now I want you to think yourself of yourself as very strong and very robust and just a, a real strong person and put those kinds of thoughts in your mind. And they were tested again. And they did better, and if I recall significantly so, um, when they were thinking thoughts that they were strong. So... The actual thoughts do affect us. 
I mean, look at the physiological changes that occur when a person is sexually aroused, which is a thought-based process. Um, I understand that studies have shown that one's thoughts hugely affect the outcome of certain diseases. Uh, and, you know, we all probably know from personal experience the effect of stress, which is thought-based, and how that can result in ulcers and in headaches and in back pain and all kinds of physical maladies. And if you think about stress, really what it is, I mean, unless it's physically somebody beating on you, but in terms of what we commonly call mental stress, it's just our own thoughts projecting, you know, oh, what if this doesn't happen? What if I get that thing done in time? What if my, my investments all fail? What if I don't have any investments? What if I get old, can't take care of myself? And on and on and on. And it's all going on inside our mind. So it's all thought-based, and yet it has a huge impact on our physiology. So when we hear a piece of good news, that affects us positively. It affects our health because the impact of hearing it is affecting the emotions and the physiology of the person enough to have an impact. Now, this is an important distinction because when we look at it, uh, say, at a beautiful sunset, it's pleasing, but apparently it does not affect us in a physiological way, or at least not the same physiological way. But a piece of good news is stronger. It has a bigger impact. The hearing of that can affect us psychologically. I mean, if we're really uh, stressing ourselves out, there's a negative impact on our body. If I go look at a pretty sunset, okay, that may have a pleasing effect in my eyes, but apparently um, doesn't have necessarily the same uh, physiologically positive impact that the stress had in terms of a negative impact. Now, the Art Scroll edition of Proverbs points out, and this is a very interesting insight, that the compensation that one must pay to a person who is blinded is less than the compensation that a person must pay to one who he makes deaf. In other words, according to Torah law, the compensation that a person must pay to one whom he has blinded is less than the compensation he must pay to a person who he makes deaf. So, that suggests that the impact of hearing something, the loss of hearing, is considered more of a loss to a person than sight. Which is an interesting thing because I'm guessing a number of us would probably say, gee, it seems intuitively like it's the reverse. But this verse seems to follow that particular approach. And as further proof, consider the situation in the Tanakh, uh, in the, the, the Bible, where a, a particular prophet was angry, and he listened to harp music, and that calmed him down so that he could then get prophecy. Because as, as I understand it, you cannot get prophecy when you're angry. 
And notice that in that situation, what was engaged was his sense of hearing, not his sense of sight. And that sense of hearing, by listening to the, the harp music, calmed his emotions, which can have a physiological effect. I mean, if you've ever gone from being angry to being calm, you know there's a physiological difference between those two states. And one of them is certainly healthier than the other. So, yeah. My father has, 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 over the years, progressively lost his hearing. And just recently, my mom took him in to have a hearing test done. And to, to, to um, make this even more scientifically, the doctor told my mother, since he had lost a lot of his hearing, that his cognitive thought isn't there anymore because he cannot hear. And um, that is very true with my father. He does not, his, his thinking is like way out of whack, totally off the wall. Oh, that's interesting. So the, the doctor is suggesting that the loss of hearing is causative to losing your ability to think clearly. Yes. Wow. That is a piece of information I had not heard before, but it certainly not, ties in with this. Yeah, I had not heard it either, but this is what the doctor told my mom. <clears throat> wow. And what? he's 82, so... Okay. Wow. When you talking about hearing, it's like, hey, this is what that doctor just said, too. And it's the same thing that being said here with what you're saying. Yeah, and you know, there's an interesting tie-in now as I think that through, because when we think about uh, working with other people and interacting with other people, which is one of the ways that we challenge ideas and and keep ourselves sharp uh, in a cognitive way, that happens through hearing. It doesn't generally happen through sight unless you happen to be a deaf person who learns how to read lips. Uh, you know, we sit around in a living room or even in a class like this and we talk about ideas and the main sense that we're using in doing that is our sense of hearing. So if that's closed off, then we don't have that cognitive input that we would otherwise have. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. Thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, that, that is, it was really odd when my mom told me that. And I said, well, it makes total sense if it's bad for doing, you know. Right. Well, so then when we put all that together, we see a, a, an interesting and not immediately intuitive idea, which is that the body is more affected to the good by good news than by sight. So, for example, looking at a beautiful mountain will not necessarily cause an angry person to calm down, but listening to peaceful music can do that. And uh, to Linda's point, uh, you know, there can be a real negative effect on our cognitive abilities if we don't have uh, that way to communicate with other people, which is generally through speech and hearing. 
Now, I mean, obviously we're, we're talking in generalities here because there could be specific people with a different propensity, but in general, the picture you see with your eyes of something beautiful may be pleasing to you, but hearing good news can result in a stronger experience that makes you healthier. Now, note that this is when we're talking about something good. But notice the interesting and apparently opposite uh, situation when we're looking at what can arouse the instincts. I submit that it is generally visual over auditory that has the most effect. If we think about the material world of physical pleasures, it's the visual images that seem to have the more profound effect. If we look at the world of advertising, uh, I would submit that there's much more that is sold by virtue of the visual than is sold by virtue of what we hear. Uh, the pictures of if you drive this car or if you buy this particular piece of clothing or wear this particular cologne, you know, your life is going to be transformed and be wonderful. That's generally done through a visual medium. Uh, if we think of the sexual or the appetitive or simply desiring a material thing, um, you know, material things are physical. Uh, people who are held up to be beautiful are physical. Uh, a particularly um, uh, wonderful looking meal is a physical thing, and we see those visually. So it's the image that seems to have the greater effect toward moving a person toward the instinctual uh, or to arouse that desire. Uh, while the, the audio seems to be uh, the reverse. Um, it's hard to imagine, I think, a sound that would tend to make the majority of people hungry. But if you put in front of them a picture of delicious steaming food or a luscious chocolate dessert, that can really get our mouths watering whether we are hungry or not. So it appears that hearing has the most profound effect on us when it's related to the good, while the visual has a more profound impact the opposite way. Okay, any questions on this? Okay, so let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 31. And the verse reads, The ear that hears the musser of life, among the wise he will live. The ear that hears the musser of life, among the wise he will live. Okay, so what kind of questions does that raise? Okay, Louis, thank you. What is the Musser of life? Uh, and comparing that with the first, the second half, I would ask, well, is, is one who hears the Musser of life different from the wise? And when it says he will live, well, what does that mean? I mean, you know, all, 
all kinds of people live. Plus, there doesn't really seem to be any contrast here uh, between the first half and the second half. So what is it that King Solomon is trying to tell us? Yeah, Linda Good, how does that apply to the wise? So according to Rabbi Moskowitz, Musser is the science of the consequences of your life. It's the study of consequences and how to make good decisions. So in this verse, the Musser of life means how to make decisions. So it would be the, the ear that hears, uh, I guess, the science of how to make decisions. Among the wise he will live. Now, you may recall from our discussion, uh, I think it was last time, about verses 25 and 26, Rabbi Moskowitz had suggested that sometimes in a verse, we don't find a consequence. So we try to see if there's a connection between the verse before it or the verse after it. And sometimes a verse does have a consequence, but the next verse makes it clearer, or maybe the one before. So this verse seems to be saying that a person whose mind is open to hear the science of Musser, the science of how to make decisions in life, that person will live among the wise. In other words, he'll have a wise life. So if that's true, what's the contrast? If we go back to verse 30, the one that we just did, that verse is talking about circumstantial things around a person. You see a beautiful river, you see a nice garden, you see a nice sunset, or you get a piece of good news. These are all things outside the person. Uh, that's a way of describing a person who gets a good life by good circumstances, circumstances being the things that happened around him. In this verse, we're talking about a person who makes a good life through Musser, through the science of consequences and decision-making. Yes, he'll run into circumstances, but the essence of his good, of his living with the wise, comes from how he makes decisions. And by listening to the words of Musser, by learning how to make those decisions, he positions himself with the wise. So it isn't about what happens to him in his circumstances. It's the life he creates through his decision-making process and through the lessons of wisdom. Science is a way of education. The Rabag says that it's impossible for someone to have any science without Musser. It's an interesting statement. And the Ralbag is, is one of the, uh, the commentators. Now, there are people who are scientists, and they know science, but the science doesn't affect them. Musser is nothing if it doesn't affect you. If the ideas don't affect you, then the learning is a waste of time. That's why reading tons of books isn't necessarily a measure of a smart person or a learned person or a measure of anything. You know, we've got 
services out there that will condense books down and you know you can get the maybe the one-page summary and the five-page summary and the 20-page summary of a 200-page book. And all the time, it seems like what we're trying to do there is, well, how can I read more books faster? You know, get more information in. But it's not so much the amount of information that we get in that makes the difference. It's how much those ideas actually affect us. Because if I read 20 books and none of the ideas affected me, what was the point? Um, it's, it's how much did the ideas in the book really affect me? You know, uh, someone once said, and I think I, either Rabbi Mosco had said it or I perhaps heard it from him, after all of your learning, what remains is your education. In other words, you know, what sticks, what is actually having an impact? And that's why we have to learn through the study of Proverbs and our observations of everyday life, how wisdom teaches us a way of life. And that learning has to affect our lives in order for the learning to be worthwhile. So that's my understanding of what the verse is getting at. Any questions on that? Okay. So... Let's move on, and the subject of the next verse is uh, similar, but the, the verse is different. This is Proverbs 15, verse 32. And it reads, He who despises Musser hates himself, and he who listens to Musser acquires a mind. A rather odd, uh, odd phraseology. He who despises Musser hates himself, and he who listens to Musser acquires a mind. So, what kinds of questions does that verse bring up? Yeah, Louis, uh, the phrase hates himself seems kind of, kind of strong. So, what does it mean to despise Musser? I mean, we need to figure that out. And then why does... Why does a person who despises Musser hate himself? And what does it mean to listen to Musser? And then, what in the world does it mean to acquire a mind? So in this case, right off the bat, we see that in the verse there is a clear contrast. You've got one who despises Musser versus one who listens to Musser. So it appears that the subject is a person's response to Musser, the science of of the consequences of your life. And Prescott, let me pause. And uh, uh, you've written, if what you learn proves helpful and beneficial and you don't do it, it's like recognizing you are sick. You know the medicine to heal and refuse to take it. Very, very good point. Excellent point. So we know that that Musser is the science of con the consequences of your life, and studying this uh, can affect me, okay? And I have to study it in a way so that um, it does have an effect, otherwise it's a waste of time. So, let me ask you the question. If a person despises this science, why would a person who despises this science hate himself? 
I mean, what do you think the connection is there? Why would a person who despises the learning, the science of the consequences of their lives, why would he hate himself? What do you think? So let me offer an illustration, and it picks up right on what Prescott had mentioned. Suppose you had two syringes. One is filled with a life-giving medication that will treat a problem that you have. And the other is filled with poison that will make you sick. And if you inject it long enough, it will cause your early death, or at least a life filled with pain and discomfort. Okay? And the two syringes are right before you. All right, and let me pause. And Lenny, you said he's not ready to accept what his actions have caused. Okay, good. Good. So, if a person chose the poisonous syringe, we would certainly say, well, he must hate himself. Otherwise, why would he choose something that is poisonous for his own body and for his own life? The person who despises Musser, who is not willing, okay, and as Linda suggested, not willing to look at the consequences of his actions, nor learn from them, nor accept any counsel from someone external who sees what the person is doing to himself, it seems that that person must at some level hate himself. Why? Because he is choosing to ignore life-giving information in favor of operating in a way that will ultimately cause him pain and discomfort and very possibly premature death. Now, he's being pulled by his emotions. Um, you know, and maybe the stuff in the, the, uh, uh, the poisonous syringe you know, has been flavored with something that, you know, has an, uh, an immediate taste that tastes good, but in fact, it's poisonous. So he's not operating on the basis of the long-term consequences of his actions. And so I would submit that there must be some level, it would seem, of personal hate there, or a huge amount of lack of understanding. But notice that the verse uses a very interesting term. It says, he who despises Musser. It doesn't say he who is ignorant of Musser. Okay, a person that simply doesn't know, okay, they make a mistake and they, they uh, accidentally take some you know, non-life-giving medication, go down the wrong road, make some boo-boos. I mean, we all do that. But the verse is, uses the word despise, which, uh, from my standpoint, carries the connotation that he's familiar with what the thing is, that is, with the idea of Musser, but he's actively choosing to ignore it. Okay? A, a person could be, um, you know... Uh, ignorant of uh, psychology and therefore not act in a very wise way psychologically in certain circumstances. But if we say a person despises psychology, 
that implies that they have some understanding of it and they have actively chosen to ignore it. In fact, they can't stand it. So I submit that we're not talking here about the case of an ignorant person. A person who simply hasn't studied Musser because he's unaware of it may not hate himself. He may just be ignorant. But a person who despises Musser seems like must be familiar with it and must be actively turning away from it because at some level he hates it. He can't stand it. And that person is the one who must be hating himself because he's despising the life-giving syringe even though he knows what's in it in favor of the poisonous syringe. Okay? So that's my explanation of what the first half is getting at and why it says he who despises Musser hates himself. A person who's just ignorant, eh, not necessarily, but one who despises it, that there has, there, there has to be, it seems, some hate of the self. So what about the second half? So the second half of the verse states, he who listens to Musser acquires a mind. And what does that mean? I submit that that is essentially the opposite of the first half. So someone who listens to Musser and makes it a part of his life is training his mind. He's training his mind to think in terms of consequences, of analyzing situations, of looking at character qualities, and all those kinds of things uh, that constitute wisdom. And by doing so, by getting involved in that, he is actually training his mind to think clearly, to think correctly, and to think in accordance with reality. So in that sense, it's like acquiring a mind, a true mind. Okay, Not just this thing that leads me around to follow my emotional impulses, but a true mind that thinks and uh, that you know, governs the person's life from an intellectual basis. Yes, everybody has a mind, okay? but anyone who goes to a beach can get wet. Uh, it takes some training to learn how to swim and to be a really good swimmer uh, and to swim correctly and efficiently. That's the training of the mind here. It's a lifelong process because we're constantly working on undoing our emotions and learning to see reality clearly. So the person who accepts Musser acquires a mind, a mind that sees and operates in accordance with the reality that God created. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, so let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 33. And it reads, The fear of God is musser of wisdom, and before honor is humility. The fear of God is musser of wisdom, and before honor is humility. And you know what I'm going to ask. What are the questions here? What seems odd, unusual? What would we need to define in order to understand what King Solomon's trying to get at here? The fear of God is musser of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Okay? This is your opportunity, by the way, to really engage here in the material. The, the real learning of this process comes with wrestling with the ideas. 
and you know trying to think about okay what what's happening here what what would we need to figure out uh, the text is Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 33 1533 the fear of God is Musser of wisdom and before honor is humility so the first question that I would want to ask is what is the fear of God? You know, we use that term all the time, uh, but what what is that about? Is that like kind of cowering in the corner because we could get smushed at any moment? And is that the way we're supposed to live? What does that mean? And then he says, it's Musser of wisdom. Well, I wondered when I looked at it, it's like, well, why did you say Musser of wisdom? I mean, why did you add the words of wisdom? Isn't Musser enough? You know, why not just the fear of God is Musser? Why, why did you put Musser of wisdom? And then we would want to define, you know, it says before honor is humility. Well, in the context of Proverbs and Torah, what is honor? And then what's humility? And why is it that it comes before honor? Okay, and Louis, you've suggested uh, respect and awe of God. I'm not sure which one the respect is referring to. I assume that you're suggesting fear of God is awe of God. Okay, but if that's the case, ah, good. Okay, what? It, how does that work practically? I mean, if this Proverbs very practical book. What do I do on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, that is all about the fear of God? Uh, I mean, is it just that I recognize the Creator everywhere? How, do, how does that affect my practical everyday life? That's my understanding of um, what, what the book of Proverbs is primarily about. So, let me first start with what is humility let's start at the end of the verse here and rabbi moskowitz has suggested that humility is when i change my personality based on reality in other words reality trumps my personality so i change my personality to be in line with reality that, I'll suggest, is humility because I'm accepting the reality that God created and I'm subordinating myself and my personality to that. Okay? So, um, notice that, uh, and, and Prescott, you've said, you know, submission to reality. Yes, uh, I think. I think that it is, but here he's suggesting, he's kind of going further and he's saying, it's not just that I'm submitting to it, but I'm actually changing my personality to be in line with that. That is true humility. It's not about like turning down compliments or when everybody tells you you did a great job and you know you did a great job, but pretending that, oh no, I really didn't, uh, or pretending that you're not good at something when you really are. A truly humble person knows about his abilities uh, and he sees them very clearly. He doesn't deny them. 
but he changes his personality to be in line with the reality that he sees. Okay, so for example, if my personality was such that, um, uh, oh, perhaps I uh, really liked power and liked to push people around. It's just my personality, you know, I, I like to do that. But I recognize, ah, but wait a minute, that's unjust. And even though that might be my, you know, natural inclination of the way I would like to do things because of my personality, I need to modify that personality in order to uh, uh, submit, Prescott, as you said, to uh, and line it up with the reality that God created, which involves a certain amount of justice. And there are people that, you know, I, I have to look after rather than, you know, push around. So it's the recognition of really truly who I am in the universe uh, in comparison to uh, the reality or within the reality that God created. Now, the honor which comes before, uh, you know, the humility comes before honor, the honor here uh, goes back to the hachamim, the wise people. When the hachamim, the wise people, see that you changed your philosophy based on science, based on reality, that's humility and that's what they respect. In other words, when they see that you have that ability, that is the thing that they respect because they recognize that's real wisdom. So then you get honor that you're recognized by the wise people. So real honor that comes from the wise, humility has to come before that, a recognition of you know, who you are and how you fit into the world and uh, changing your philosophy and your personality and so forth because of that. So if that's true, then we could ask, well, why would a person of humility want honor in the first place? So Rabbi Moskowitz suggested this answer. Honor by the wise is a barometer of who you are. It's a way of checking who you are. It's not that you're interested in the honor itself or looking for it, but it's a check-in point for you. It's a barometer that measures, okay, who you are. Why does a person even care about a barometer? Because a person wants to know what his abilities are. So you use it as a way to check in to see if you're moving in the direction that you want to be moving. Again, it's not the honor itself, but the honor is a tool to make sure that you're on the right path. Okay, so that's the second half. Now let's shift back to the first half. What is the fear of God? And I think we've talked about this before in some of our other verses. I'll submit to you that it is the fear of consequences. That the fear of God is the fear of consequences. The wise person is concerned about the consequences of his actions. And he's thinking about taking proper actions in order to avoid those consequences. 
And since God created reality, he's in fear of reality. Not the kind of fear that immobilizes you or paralyzes you, but the kind of fear or uh, healthy respect that causes a person to look at reality and analyze it and make the best decisions he can with regard to it because he doesn't want the consequences of a lousy decision. And I'll go a step further and submit that this is all a person can do with regard to reality. It's all you can do. You can analyze it, you can try to understand it, and you can try to make the best decisions possible in light of the consequences and all the related factors that you're aware of. I mean, that is, I would submit, the way that we are to live our lives. And it's my understanding that this is exactly what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live our lives. It's not something magical. It's not something mystical. It's very clear and straightforward. And that this is Musser of Wisdom. This is the science of the consequences of your life. And the study and application of that science leads to wisdom. Which gets back to the, the uh, wording of the fear of God is Musser of Wisdom. The fear of consequences is, uh, is Musser of Wisdom. That science of consequences which leads to that. Okay, any questions on that? Ah, Prescott. Excellent point. You've uh, said, and let me read this for those who might be listening to the recording. You pay honor to those who succeed at working the system, good or bad. Thieves honor other thieves who are good at thieving. Rich men honor other rich men and each try to outdo the other. A thief doesn't care what the cops think and righteous people shouldn't care what the unrighteous think of the efforts to please Hashem. Very interesting point. Uh, and in the world of the wise... You know, what they recognize is the person who really modifies their life and essentially aligns it completely uh, with the world of reality. Very good point. Thank you. Any other comments on this verse or questions? Proverbs 16, verse 1, To man he organizes his mind, and from Hashem comes the tongue's expression. So, what kinds of questions does that verse raise? And Prescott, yeah, you've uh, provided another translation that says, a man may arrange his thoughts, but what he says depends on the Lord. Good. Okay. Seems like a rather strange and, and uh, slightly cryptic verse. So what kinds of questions should we ask around that? Okay, Linda, um, you said, how does a man arrange his thoughts that they would turn into words? Okay, all right, good question. So a couple that I might add to that are, what is the first half of the verse telling us anyway? Um, I mean, of course people organize their minds. I mean, who else would do it? Uh, it, it 
the, that phrase, the first half, seems so obvious that there must be something more uh, going on here. And Prescott, you said, you know, I often say things that don't sound like what I was thinking. Very important point. Okay. And can you blame Hashem for that? Well, we'll see. This is a this is quite an interesting uh, interesting direction you're going because it's right in line with what I uh, what I understand uh, the verse uh, to be getting at. Um, how does the tongue's expression come from Hashem? I mean, most people just talk. So how do we say this comes from Hashem? I mean, you know, if I mess up when I talk, can I blame that on God? Um, and, and what does coming from Hashem mean altogether? I mean, is that like prophecy or is it something automatic out of my control? Or, you know, what in the world is King Solomon saying here? So the sages have a number of interpretations of this verse. And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to explain the verse with uh, what you could call a negative approach rather than a positive approach. And he suggests, uh, and Prescott to your point, that the second half means that you don't have control over your language. In other words, Sometimes you think something through, okay, but you don't have it clear. And you find out that you don't have it clear when you actually express it. This is why it's so important sometimes to verbalize an idea rather than just think about it. Why? Because verbalizing forces you to be more precise. Okay, and writing it down does a similar thing. You think you got the idea all worked out, you know, it makes sense in my mind, yeah, it's very clear to me, but then you go to write it down uh, or verbalize it and you can start to see where the holes are. So verbalizing or writing an idea down forces you to be more precise. The verbalizing can be especially helpful if you verbalize the idea to a friend who knows how to analyze ideas because they can then turn around and question you just like we do with these verses in Proverbs to see what makes sense, what doesn't, and what issues might not be explained clearly. Uh, and, and you've probably experienced this before. You think an idea is very clear. You tell it over to a friend and they say, huh, that doesn't make any sense to me because of da-da-da-da-da. And you realize, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't quite follow. It made sense to me when I was thinking about it. And Prescott, you're absolutely right. There is a distance between what we think and then what we say and then what other people hear. Because what we're, what we're thinking in our head is one thing. What goes out may be adjusted by a number of things that we'll talk about in just a second. And then there are a whole bunch of filters that go on before those words actually hit the other person that are based on their background, their upbringing, their culture, how they were treated as a child, the way they interpret certain inflections, all kinds of things like that uh, make a huge difference in how they interpret what is said. And then they tell something back to us that is based on their background, their childhood, their culture, 
so forth. It comes over to us. We interpret it through the filter of our background, our childhood, our, you know, all that stuff. And sometimes when you look at all that, it's kind of amazing that we're able to communicate with each other at all. Um, and yes, Prescott, thank you. Mind can go through endless loops of ideas until you write the idea down. And once you commit it to paper, then that usually ends the spin cycle. Uh, and you can see where the problems are and see where the holes are and get those sorted out. Now, in addition to verbalizing and not having the idea clear, another thing that comes in to play in the words that come out of our mouth versus what's going on in our mind is that our emotions may come in. And we end up saying things that we don't think we really mean because I'm not totally aware of the emotions that are affecting me in what I say. So I had this idea in mind, but wow, by the time it got out there, or even maybe thinking it through, my emotions are, be, are affecting what I'm actually coming out and saying. So, um, you know, we, we can say uh, that the mouth expresses what's on the mind, but there might be some emotional you know, impact there going on. And in addition, there's the unconscious part of my mind uh, and those emotional things that may be affecting me. So even though we say the mouth expresses what's on the mind, um, uh, if what you're saying is coming from the unconscious, then you may not be even aware of those things, but yet they're still coming out of your mouth. Okay, so you end up being surprised that, well, what I was thinking was this, but what actually came out was this. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, said that when the verse says Hashem, from Hashem comes the tongue's expression, it's saying that what we say is not 100% within our control. Sometimes we say things we didn't intend to say either because of the emotions, or because of the unconscious, or both. So, my interpretation would be that the verse is attributing that to Hashem, uh, presumably because he created us. I don't think it's removing the responsibility from us for what we say, but it is trying to explain that there's more going on that may come out of your mouth than just the thoughts that uh, are going on in our mind. There can be a difference between what we think and what comes out of our mouths, even when we've thought it out. And that difference could be emotional issues that we're not seeing or things from our unconscious. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, in that case, we will stop here for tonight. Thank you all very much for joining, and I hope you can join us next time.